This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello, welcome to the fourth episode of Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast, especially for plant lovers. Alan, I suppose, as is usually the, the way, I should let you introduce me with all of my middle names. Welcome to everybody. Uh, this is Thordis. <laughs> Marie. Maria. Marie. Marie. This is Thordis Marie Sophia Friedrichsen. And this is Alan Edward Herbert Gray. Herbert, the happy, <laughs> handsome horticulturalist, as we've come to call him. Uh, every week we are being joined by a mystery guest, as is the norm. We like to keep them secret at the beginning of the podcast, then do a big reveal. So, drum roll. Who's behind the mystery window? Hello. <laughs> well-lit, devilishly handsome and very impish. Uh, ben, would you like to introduce yourself a la and avec your middle name? Uh, I'm Ben James Potterton. Oh, I was expecting something a bit more ostentatious. No, it's very disappointing. I always, as you know, my son has a far more exciting name, but I've just got a James in the middle. I quite like a Herbert though. Who doesn't like a Herbert? <laughs> Why did he pick that? <laughs> Herbert's lovely. Now, as you know, my son's got, got Wasp as his middle name. But, but not remotely Waspish at all. Well, he, he's got time. I think when he gets we'll see. Um, now, every, every time we catch up with one of our friends, we obviously know a lot about you, but people uh, sort of find this from all over the place. They may have listened to you a lot on the radio because we've all done a radio show together for lots of years. But uh, for people who don't know you at all, tell us a bit about you. Oh, I like the dog. Um, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a sort of failed horticulturalist. I, I like plants, but I'm not very keen on gardening. So I, I think I, I, the beauty of plants, and the structure of plants and the wealth of plants fascinate me. But I say gardening, I find a bit dirty and I, I can't ruin your hands. And I, I can't be doing with that. But also I like, I like wildlife. So I, I, when I was at college, I had that choice of wildlife or plants and I wasn't sure what to do really. And um, sadly, they tried to push me down the, the, the farming route, which wasn't for me. So I chose horticulture. And uh, I'm very lucky in the fact that I've been able to twin both. So I do lots of sort of conservation projects uh, and zoology is a really interest of mine and putting animals back into the wild. Um, but equally, I like nature conservation, local wildlife. I like wildflowers and bird spotting. And, you know, I, I'm an all rounder, really. And uh, going, I'm sure you'll agree with me, Alan, that going to see Ben is a little bit like visiting Dr. Doolittle. Yes, if you don't get suddenly accosted by, I don't know what they call those little monkey things that live in boxes and trees and things, um, it, you're likely to get walked by hand in hand with a crow, hand in wing with a crane or something. So there's, it's always a surprise, I have to say, it's always a surprise and sometimes more than a little alarming. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you live in a place where there are always kind of crazy animal noises waking you up at the crack of dawn. I don't, oh, I, uh, yeah, I don't notice it. It's, I was going to do an impression then, but I didn't go well. Uh, I don't notice it. It's very strange where you live. I mean, it's like even like chickens. I do like chickens and I've got a lot of chickens and lots of cockerels, but I don't hear the background noise. And if there's a problem, though, I'm up straight away. 
um, but but I can I can miss it. And um, we have various people stay from time to time, and it's like the noise of the cockles in the morning is horrific. And I'm like, what noise? <laughs> do we have do we have cockles? The other night, oh, recently this week, I have had sheep getting into my garden, and they haven't been bleating, but I've heard the rustle of the grass, and I thought, oh, I thought Alan was trying to creep in, and I've been out there like a shot. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the sheep. So it's not bleating, it's rustling like I was listening to this week. And uh, you are such a plant lover. I mean, you said you're not necessarily one for the gardening, but you love the plants. You really, really love unusual plants. And you mentioned wildflowers. You are um, regularly known to pull over the car so you can check out something that looks interesting in The Verge. Why not? Why not? I mean, there's some fantastic things. And I think when I was younger, I used to poo-poo everything. Everything was, you know, wildflowers were, were just weeds. And... But when you look at them and then your regional variations and different color variations, there's some super things. But like most of our, most of our garden plants we grow, the species are a weed somewhere in the world. And typically we don't appreciate our own weeds. So we can be waxing lyrical about some, some you know, plant that grows in a rough track in China. And yet if it grows in a rough track in Norwich, we don't even bother about it. So no, I, I appreciate things with age. But I'm like Alan, Alan's a plantaholic. And it's interesting how some of our colleagues would like a nice lawn or like a nice, you know, but an Alan's all rounder, but he's a plant lover, and I'm a plant lover, and I think you know I could probably do without the grass. I could probably do that, but I, you know, a fascinating range of plants. Oh, can't beat it, can you? Well, Alan, I mean, talking of being a, a plantaholic, I don't know how much you can tell us about what you've been doing with your morning, but I know it's probably <laughs> been quite exciting for someone who likes unusual plants. Well, yes, it has. Because a great friend of mine, I'm not going to say who it is or where she is, but great friend of mine has got to um, the age where she's she's downsizing but she's not moving house but she's downsizing her garden and she has a garden of a, a jewel box of a garden and um, she has certain people that she's selected that she wants to give certain plants to because she knows that they'll have a good home and they'll carry on long after she goes because she doesn't know what's going to happen to her garden obviously um, and so this morning I've been galanthus hunting so I've been digging up dormant snowdrops and making sure that each one is labelled and I brought them back. I haven't planted them yet because I'm, I'm busy doing something else at the moment, but you can ask me in a minute what that is. Um, but um, no, it, it, it's really rather nice. And it's one of those things that I said to her, will you, you know, please let me pay you for these things? And she said, no, no, no. But you can give a donation to my favourite charity that I have opened my garden for in the past. And so I did that. Um, and it was a generous donation. I hope she thinks so. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, well, you know what snowdrops cost. They're, they're not the cheapest things that you can buy today. And so, um, so we, did, we did two or three things today. I mean, I helped her. She helped me. And together we helped the charity. And I think that's, that's, that's rather nice. It makes the world go around. By the way, the, um, the National Garden Scheme Tour is fully booked on Thursday. Just to let you know, this has nothing to do with anybody else. I'm just telling you. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I mean, also raising uh, really important money for charity. Uh, if you haven't been to a National Garden Scheme garden and you're in the UK uh, watching this, you must look up ngs.org.uk because they're just such treasures. Uh, Any time you get to go and visit a garden which is loved and uh, is planted with uh, with passion is uh, as a real treat, and it's so inspiring. So um, yeah, go look. It is, and I think one thing you can't say enough. The one thing you can't say enough is please go on the NGS website, ngs.org.uk, because I've had people ringing up to book it here. Not just one, not just 10, not just 20. Do you know what I mean? 
gets a little annoying. Oh yes. Um, Alan, you said that you'd been uh, you've been doing lots of things, other things, not just galanthus hunting. What else has been on your to do list this morning? Well, I've been judging gardens today, believe it or not, as well, because um... oh. <laughs> oh, something you never. <laughs> oh yikes! Don't come here, will you? Uh, well, no. I mean, you know, the, people have been working very well because of the lockdown. People have been working really, really hard in their gardens, um, and you know, it was an invitation of some of the people in Swaffham to actually send in photographs of their garden so it could, their efforts could be judged. Now, I mean, the, the the sad thing is that there can only be one winner in all this, and it's me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> the sad Did thing is that can win. Only, like, be one winner in any category and I mean I don't mind judging because a certain amount of your personality has to come into it because it's personal taste a lot of it um, but the one the one little thing that I was a little slightly sad about was there were three children's gardens but only one could win mm. and so I've got to decide who's going to be the winner it's it it's a tough life <laughs> What have you been up to Ben I dare I ask because you've probably been up since three o'clock looking after all kinds of livestock I have. I was looking at my picture thinking, oh, I used to pull my face back a little bit, but it's not too bad. Um, no, uh, it hasn't been too bad a day. I've been catching up with various stuff. Tomorrow I have a very exciting day. There. So my, my colleagues have been sent, I've sent them off down the river to Gelderston to help with a lady who's got a beautiful wildflower meadow. And um, we're assisting her with, um, with maintaining that meadow and trying to bring more biodiversity into it. So I've sent two colleagues down to help and we've got just hay cutting today. We're moving some of the seed around. And I knew I should have gone with them, but I knew I'd never come back. So I decided to be more, more uh, constructive. Um, Mrs. Potterton and Rowan are out somewhere, been doing some, some work, moving some eryngiums. I've sort of flitted about. But tomorrow I'm going to the Cotswold Wildlife Park in Oxford, which is a beautiful garden. I mean, it's one of the, my favorite gardens of a zoo garden. Um, very well thought of garden, um, nice perennial borders, nice trees. They've gone to the effort that they don't need to really. They've got heated water for water, uh, tropical water lilies outside, which is lovely to see. I mean, I'm sure most of the visitors it's lost on, um, but it's a beautiful garden. And I'm hoping if I have time, uh, I'm going to pop in at uh, Avondale Nurseries in Coventry, which is not on the route to Oxford particularly. It's about an hour and a bit out of my way, but I want a few things and I'm going in that rough direction. So I'm hoping for a very busy day tomorrow. And I'm going to pick up a new male donkey, which is very exciting, miniature donkey. So. I'm hoping to come back with lots of plants and a donkey. <laughs> I feel like we should catch up with you to find out what plants you managed to pick up on your adventures. And perhaps that might give us, or at least me, a spot of what I've been calling floral FOMO. But between episode three of Talking Dirty and episode four, Alan has renamed it. Um, and I feel a bit stupid for not calling it FLOMO myself. So... <laughs> Uh, ben, you're new to this this feature of FLOMO, the fear of missing out on a fabulous plant. Um, I'm going to go first because I always pick the most boring thing because I'm the newest gardener. I wrote it down so I didn't forget what it was. I went to the garden at King's College, Cambridge yesterday and had such a wonderful tour in the, the rain with their head gardener, Steve Coghill, who knows so much and hopefully can join us on this podcast at some point. But everywhere I went, I kept seeing Campsis chinensis. Uh, the Chinese trumpet vine in various shades of oranges and yellows and lovely kind of ambers and you can see why I love it and um, and it really looks like it should be tender but he assured me it shouldn't be so I need some Campsis chinensis in my life desperately. 
and you won't regret having it. But the only thing is, I think I have to warn you that it can be a little bit of a rampant um, chap. It did look rampant. It, 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 it only really flowers on the ends of its shoots. It just keeps going and going and going. But the, the funny thing is that you mentioned this campsis um, and a few years ago, I mean, 20 or 30 years ago, it, the strange thing was lots of people were growing it in England, but not many of them got it to flower successfully. Um, and that is tantamount because, well, it's caused by global warming. That's why it flowers so well today, because you only had to cross the channel and go into northern France, um, or, and which is slightly warm, or in those days was warmer than England, and it was flowering abundantly. Today it's flowering abundantly here, and we've got it out in the garden here. And if, if, it's, if it's the one I think you may have seen, was this in the Cambridge College? Uh, yes. There's a huge orange specimen there. Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that and it, it made me go and get that plant because that plant is quite an unusual one. It's not one of the Madame Galen or, or you know, the yellow or the bright red or anything. It's a larger flower. It's more floriferous and it's absolutely wonderful. It's probably a bit too big for my garden, but that's not going to stop me. I no, can probably see mine from here. Oh, you can? I think they just started flowering. Um, yeah. But you're, they, I thought I looked at it in the winter and thought, oh, it's looked very dead. The twigs look, they don't give you much enthusiasm in the winter. You look at it and think, oh, I've lost it. And it's beautiful. It's going over a, a side of a building and it's very, it's very, it's, it's been I'm lucky because it's quite a neat one and it's sort of going on the gable. And I'm quite, a, my wife keeps telling me we should give it a trim, but I'm never. Right. But you can give it a trim, Ben, because I went to a garden of Brian and David, Brian Ellis and mm. David the other day, and they've got one growing on the back of their house. Um, and they trim it quite regularly because if not, it goes through the window and out the other side of the house. So they oh, really? Oh, well. So you can. I'll, give it a, I'll consider giving it a trim. As our guest, Ben, what's your Flomo? Well, I've had it before, uh, Alan, will, I will tell you that. And um, uh, um, there's an Eryngium, <laughs> shush, Alan. There's an Eryngium, I think it's Erbracteatum. And it's var something other beginning with a p and it's like a tiny little red flowered eryngium now i had it years ago from liz strangman possibly and i might have had it again from beth chateau oh, oh but i've i've lost it and then there's a dutch chap who me and alan know and he posted a picture of it this week growing in some uh, perennial gardens and it's beautiful because it's got this it's like a sanguisorum with little red pencils um and it's doing very well so i think that perhaps the original isn't wonderful not terribly hardy but the but there's a variant of it which obviously suits gardens better so i'm going to have a look and see if i can get that so it's a it's an eryngium erbracteatum and it's um i say a variety of it and it's got it i suppose it's going to flower to about five feet four to five feet little red pencils it's a super little thing so i would like to get that very very fine foliage grass-like foliage i need more eryngiums in my life i have a lovely one that i got from you alan can't remember the name of it but it's a really strong blue one and it's a good size but everywhere i, I go Oh, there we go. I think it's called the belly eye. That sounds yeah. about right. Oh, the belly eye is very nice. One of my favourites is one of Graham's least favourites because he planted it in the desert and it seeds itself everywhere. And it's the variety of Eryngium pandanifolium, which comes from South America. Um, and it, it, it's called the Chelsea Physic Garden strain because this one has maroon thimbles on it as opposed to grey thimbles on it. But it's a monstrous thing. It grows nine to 12 feet tall, um, which is quite, quite large. Have you, as you, have you got uh, any spare ones? I might have. Because, because I had it and it was beautiful. Fantastic thing. I used to cut the flowers and, and dry them. It's beautiful. And then I tried to move yeah. it, which was a mistake. Well, we, 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 we potted some on the other day, Ben. Well, I was going to get some tomorrow from Avondale, but they, they've sold out. 
Well, if, if you want me to cheap this year, Alan. One, I will do. Alan, they were very cheap this year. I, do, I know. Would you know that? <laughs> I mean, we go back a long way. Now they were almost giving turn. them away, they were. So, Alan Gray, what's your Flomo? My, uh, my has to be Flomo's because um, oh. <clears throat> there's a, a piece of garden. I have to say, I'm, I'm working it out in my head still at the moment, but. Um, it happened because we had to divert a path because of social distancing when the garden is open. And instead of it being a kind of back way to nowhere, it suddenly became a main highway to somewhere. And so <laughs> I was going along this path and I was pulling out hogweed and cow parsley and, you know, all the things that you kind of see on the outer edges of a garden, lots of old wild campion. They're all nice things in a wildflower way, but it now has to be slightly more manicured. And uh, I was sort of thinking, <clears throat> I moved some cyclamen heterifolium, silver leaf, and I put those there. And I suddenly thought this piece of garden needs loving, it needs tending. It's a lot more open than it used to be because we moved some, we removed some lime trees. Um, so it's got a, a nice open feel to it. And I would like to plant amongst lots of other lovely, especially early flowering bulbs, corms, tubers, that sort of thing. I would like to plant some trilliums. Now, trilliums is something that I haven't really had a great deal of success with, mainly because I haven't bought any, because they are quite expensive to buy. Oh, please. <laughs> what? Frugal Grey? That's a yes, over here, Frugal Grey. You're getting that That's from... That's um, I know. No. What's it called? Who's the <laughs> thing of thrift? Oh, Martin. Martin Davies. Martin. Martin's been rubbing off on Alan, something I never thought I'd say that. I guessed at some point, but uh, yeah, the king of thrift. I think Alan Gray, you've spent a bit of time with him. You've picked up some of his frugal ways. No, I haven't at all, because some of these trilliums can be 10 or 20 pounds each. And that is for a single plant, because <clears throat> when they're propagated, they're grown from seed, and it probably takes eight to 10 years to get a flowering sized plant. And if you speak to somebody like Rob Potterton, no, no relation to Ben, but Rob Potterton of Potterton's Nursery up in Lincolnshire, he will tell you that that's how long it takes. And, and to be quite honest, you've got to be prepared to pay for that. Um, you know, there are various other sort of plants that you can get like erythroniums. And if you buy the one called Pagoda with the little upturned Chinese hat yellow flowers, that will multiply like bilio. But lots of the trilliums, they come from American woodland mainly. It's very choice plants. Thunder, you must remember when we went to that lovely garden owned by Jane Ann Walton in the Swantanovas one day, and we actually saw this lovely moby pink and green. Do you remember that? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's absolutely. And they're thrilling things to have. And it's another dimension and it's another piece of garden. And that's where lots of the snowdrops are going to go that I brought home today as well. How exciting. Mm. So you're having some yeah. Flomo about trilliums. So your Flomo trilliums, is for, yes. for all trilliums. Uh, yes, for all trilliums, but I would particularly like the larger flowered varieties. Um, I'm not, uh, where's this gonna go with Ben? I don't know, but I'm not one for little things. Um, I don't do the little delicate, dear little tweaks. Where are these going? The back track to nowhere? <laughs> where, tell me, like, like where are you sticking them again? No. Size does matter. Anyway. <laughs> the common and cheaper ones are very often very, very garden worthy. People get a bit sniffy about the common ones, but the common ones, the reason they're common and you see them often is because they're easier to grow. And, and people are very excited about these very small ones that are, that are very difficult. But actually, we want something that's going to pop in our garden and produce a lot of growth and flower and look stunning. And I think, you know, a, a lot of people should, should sort of consider some of the commoner ones first. And again, if they're well mulched, I mean, I found for years they were very small, but if I mulched them with 
um, something to hold a bit of moisture around the crowns, then suddenly they increase beautifully. Yeah, well, if you, they're, they're woodlanders, aren't they? So they mm. want an open woodland, leafy soil. So if you can provide them with that, they should be fine. But it's, it's strange what you, you just said, Ben, that um, what we want is a good garden plant is one that expands and opens up and smiles and enjoys itself in your garden and one that you can if you want to divide it and make more um, <clears throat> but there is something to be said for some of the people that grow these finicky little things mm. because they're all part of a big gene pool don't mm. you agree and oh i like it i'm not i like there. a delicate i like a delicate one but obviously i would cut that in a pot or a tub or a, i mean some of my little orchids they would die Im immediately in the garden um and they yes. have their place and therefore i think they they're justifiably expensive because they are more difficult to grow and they're yeah. because of them. So I think like, like when we've been, when you and me have been to see snowdrop people and they have lots in the garden, they have a little attractive greenhouse with the special ones in there. And I think that's a similar thing. But I think for many people who are put off by trillions, I think I say, I think the, the commoner ones are often the cheaper ones, and actually the ones that bulk up quite nicely. And if they learn from them, you can either grow them from seed or then perhaps then invest in some of the more choice ones. Yes, exactly. I feel like I want to know more about your special orchids, Ben. Well, I would normally be very good, but it hasn't been a special orchid year this year. I've, I've looked at other people's. I don't think I've posited them as much as I would have. So um, I, I would normally grow lots of, I think you've both have seen them, lots of Epipactus orchids, which look beautiful. And this year, I think it's been too hot very early on and they were drier than I should have kept them. So I've got lots of growth, but I haven't got a lot of flower. Um, but I've been looking at people who've been looking at them in the wild across Europe this year, and there's some super ones. So the wild ones tend to struggle, but this year the wild ones done very well, but my pot ones haven't. But it's, yeah, some of these things you, we, we grow because we enjoy, um, but they're not, say, that, that I'm, I'm forgetting I'm in East Anglia on a, on, in one of the driest places in the country, and I want to grow things that are ideally in Scotland or Wales. Um, and, uh, you know, it's having the time to try and water those things. Equally, I, I was going to be sat outside, but it was a bit windy today. And a lot of my pots are really dry today. And I've been, I mean, I've, we've had some torrential rain the last couple of days, but, you know, some of these taste rare things are growing in pots, but they need a lot more care and attention than people probably realise. Yeah, and watering pots is always a bit of a nightmare. Um, and it's amazing how the wind desiccates everything. Um, now, we have, we have no time for questions on the last episode of this podcast and um, so we've built up quite a few so we're now going to have a, a good a good selection of the questions you've sent in if you do have a question for for alan and whoever our guest expert is this week ben potterton you can pop it in the comments section below the video so scott has a lovely rhododendron in his garden and would love to know how to make more so when and how do you take cuttings alan well first of all let me just say that taking rhododendron cuttings is difficult um, and it's, you really do need a propagator to do it if you're going to try at all. But be prepared to have a 50% success rate, that's all. Um, but you just do you take a cutting like you take a normal cutting from a shrub, a semi-ripe shoot, semi-ripe ripe even shoot, um, and take the, take the lower leaves off. And when you get to the uh, leaf node at the bottom, cut it underneath a leaf node and turn the cutting around in your hand and just slightly wound the other side. Scratch a little piece of bark off because, or skin off the stem because that will induce it to callus, which it, it calluses before rooting. Um, so that's what you do, but don't expect to have huge amounts of success with it because rhododendrons, when they're propagated, they're normally either grown from seed, um, which is not reliable because every seedling is genetically different from the other, um, or they are um, 
they are grafted and that's the, the way commercial growers grow them. They actually graft them and they graft them onto the wild root stock, which is probably rhododendron ponticum, which is the horrible thing because it's, it's taken over massive areas of, of our country. It's one of those plants that was introduced and became a pest um, because it marches forward and doesn't know when to stop. But um, <clears throat> that's, what they, that's what they do. And I've got a, a rhododendron, actually, I think it's called Polar or Polar Star or something. It's just finished blooming now. It's a very late one. And that is grafted onto the base stock of rhododendron ponticum. And you can tell the one from the other because the ponticum stock, when it put, produces shoots at ground level, they're much smaller leaves than the, than the plant that I want. And I have to keep going back to it two or three times a year and cutting all those shoots off, those, the wild shoots off so the other one gets the maximum amount of strength but it's difficult rhododendrons are difficult but if if, if scott if you have success i'll bag one off you <laughs> what about layering alan would you consider layering it yes you can you can consider layering it if your bush is long enough if your bush is big enough you can actually uh, take a, a branch down to ground level and what i would do i would actually make a slit in one side of that branch and then keep the slit open by placing something like a little wedge in between. Stop grinning, Ben. I was looking at Thordese. I would also wrap that shoot in something like sphagnum moss, and then I would bury it in the ground. And if you if you bury it in the ground and keep it moist, you're going to this, this is a long-term thing. It's a minimum of a year, pr probably two, before you can dig that plant up and snap the branch away from the mother and start start it up on its own. Wow, magic. Um, now, rugby got in touch about a tamarix tree. So in spring, they used to all, this, this particular tree always used to flower. But for the last two years, hasn't been so successful and hasn't turned pink now. Perhaps coincidentally, rugby uh, cut the tree back quite hard two years ago. So they're wondering, is that what's caused it? They have let it get quite big. They'd be grateful for any tips to do better with their tree. Well, I think, I mean, spring flowering tamarisks, especially along the coast, are very, very easy trees to grow because they tolerate salt spray from the sea. Um, but they're very nice because there's two sorts of tamarisks you can get, the summer flower, the spring flowering and the autumn flowering, late summer autumn flowering ones. And they are lovely, um, lovely sort of pink flowers along this sort of, it's an ugly tree, really. It's, it, it, it doesn't have sort of leaves as such. It looks like an upturned witch's broom, really. Um, but it's a very nice plant nonetheless. Now, I think that probably rugby, your, your um, tamarisk is suffering from um, an overkeen haircut. Um, I would give it another year to see what it does. And if it doesn't, I would try, try taking cuttings. Hey, why, don't, why the heck don't you try taking cuttings now anyway? Because cuttings are fairly easy to root. Just take cuttings off the, off the plant about eight inches long. Um, and make a slit in, in, in the garden somewhere, fill it full of sand and place your cuttings in the sand, make sure they're firmly um, rooted, uh, firmly firmed into the soil on either side, give it a jolly good watering, and hey, no, who knows, in a year, you might have a young one to take over the, the duties of the old one that started, stopped flowering. For some reason, Ben, you strike me as, a, as someone who'd really liked tamarisks. They just have some sort of airiness that I, I can see in your garden. But from that facial expression, I'd guess I'm wrong. No, they're OK. They're one of those things where I like, I like with the coast. I like the Southwold. They're nice and scruffy and they look as if they need to be at the coast. They, they sort of suit that wind blown sort of condition. Um, but I don't think they always, that always jumps very well into a garden. I think sometimes they look a bit too scruffy and not entirely sure how people place them. But I do like them. I think and I think Southwold, they're fantastic. I like seeing the birds feeding in them and around them. And it's a good place to look for migrants. But um, yeah, I do like it. But I think it doesn't always jump into a garden very well. 
You know, I, I absolutely concur with that, Ben, because you, you've actually hit the nail on the head because they they look perfectly well at the seaside where everything is slightly blown about and shall we say less formal. If mm. you try to plant a, a tamarisk in a formal setting of a formal garden, it looks like a fish out of water. Mm. <laughs> See, maybe that's why I thought Ben would be a fan. It's a plant with a tousled look about it. <laughs> How rude. How rude. <laughs> Um, now, I think you'll both enjoy the next question. Christina is getting a tiny, tiny baby tortoise and wants to plant a little garden for it. So what would you suggest? Now, Ben, as our guest and as our wildlife expert, I suppose I should let you go first, though I know, Alan, you are a super, super keen tortoise keeper. So you're both going to have to kind of vie to, to give suggestions, well, I reckon. I've been, I've been first, so let Ben go first this time. So well, yeah, you. I'm... I'm not a tortoise keeper anymore. We, we've, we've honed ours because we had quite a lot and they were growing very quickly. Um, but the problem with the tiny, tiny baby tortoises is they stay tiny, tiny for quite a while. And, I, and I'd be always nervous about little ones in the garden because little baby tortoises can be eaten by many things like foxes and crows and seagulls and just swallowed. So I'd always be very careful because people want to give them out in sunshine and put them outside, but be very careful with them because they are easily you know, picked up by other things. But no, I mean, tortoises are, if you think where they come from in the wild, most of them are coming from quite rough conditions. So when you buy one as a pet or give them one or don't you know, rehome one, we often do the best for them and we give them lots of you know, lush leaves, which they enjoy. They love a lettuce, they love a tomato. Um, but equally, they're quite resilient little creatures in the wild. They're eating, you know, quite rough desert type species um, and they're surviving on quite dry, dry stuff. The main thing about a tortoise is making sure that you've got a lot of vitamins and minerals it um, so if you're going to give it uh, a, a softer foli foliage make sure you sort of use a, um, a vitamin supplement but I mean I, I, they're quite resilient tortoises if you give them a wide range of things to eat they soon pick what they want but I like a nice more of a herby mix I suppose so they, which is more similar to as they would get it in the wild. What about you Mr Gray what do your tortoises well, like to, to munch into? Well, they love mallow, to be, be quite honest, the little, you know, the little wild mallow. They love that. They love honeysuckle leaves as well. Mm. But I think if, if I was advising somebody, I would get a wildflower mixture mm. and sow that on a little piece of garden. And what I would always do with the tortoises have a covered run. Ben touched on that mm. because he was talking about small tortoises, but I'm, ju I'm just talking about tortoises per se, because tortoises are very stealable. And I'm not suggesting that people go around stealing tortoises, but they are quite a lot of money to buy. Um, and so it does induce people to do naughty things sometimes. So I'd make sure that they have a very secure run that's covered over at the top and preferably hammered into the ground so they can't be lifted away and lifted off and just taken away. Um, but if you had that and you had a suitable um, area where you could actually plant with wildflowers, you could move the run a different period so that it you know so the the chewed up flowers have a chance to recover while you put it onto something new i think that's what what i would do primarily and they also love apples of course as well remembering they can dig because very often yes, that's important important point. I mean, and they've done yes, tortoises are very good diggers Right, well, you mentioned apples, apples and pears. The final question is from Francis, who says, my partner would like a cordon or a spalier pear for his birthday to grow on a west-facing fence. Can you recommend a particularly good eating variety? And as we are first-time fruit tree growers, would you recommend cordon or a spalier? For a pear, I would always go for an espalier, I think, um, because I, personally, I find that they look pretty, prettier. Um, who, who's this from? This is for Francis. Francis. 
Francis. Well, Francis, um, I hope you still love the old man because you're going to have to put your hand in your pocket for this one. Because if you buy um, a semi-formed espalier fruit tree, they are expensive, but they're worth it. Um, and then you just you just learn. I mean, there's so many tutorials on online today about telling you how to prune and when to prune and what to prune and all the rest of it when you're making it or indeed continuing to form an espalier. Um, it makes it really easy. Um, so don't be frightened of the fact that you're going to have to learn how to tie it in and prune it. But uh, the variety I would recommend is always Doyen de Comis, which is a wonderful old pair. And it does the very, very best of all on um, a south or west facing fence or wall. Um, and it's the kind of pair that you pick and you put it in a drawer, wrap it in tissue paper, put it in a drawer and you take it out once a week to look at it and you'll smell. If you, if you lift it up to your nose and you take a sniff, you will smell when it's ready. Leave it too long and it'll go a little bit fozy, as my grandmother used to say, fozy in the middle, which means that where the core is, it starts to go wet and a bit pappy and a bit brown. But eaten at the right time, they are absolutely sublime. And uh, Frances mentioned she was in our native Norfolk. So, Ben, are there any good local suppliers she should be heading to? I'm disappointed you've not asked me to make a comment. I, I, I like a pretty <laughs> pair. I'm not sure about an old foisty pair, but a pretty pair, I don't mind what lane. I'm quite easily. Easily pleased. You just um, like a lovely pair. pair. I like a pair. You know, a nice time of year, a nice pretty pair always cheers me <laughs> up. And you know, there is some good suppliers. And uh, um, the Orchard Orchard Project is a very good one. So um, if you type it in, type in either Heritage, Norfolk and Suffolk Apple varieties. or, or And you can, you know, you've got local growers and uh, some super things. And when you start looking at it, it is fascinating the, the, the range of, of local fruit we had and, ha and thankfully have still got available to us. So there's a, there's a nice, nice pears, some nice apples and nice plums, etc. Um, what about Robin? We still always have a little Robin pears, Alan. Yes, I've got Robin pears as columnar trees. Um, they haven't fruited yet because we've only had them a couple of years and uh, Ian got them for me in actual fact, and but they are lovely if you've got if you're short space. But the thing, beauty about a robin pear is you pick it straight from the tree and pop it in your mouth, just like you would, Ben. Um, it's absolutely delicious. I knew a robin with a nice pear. Um, <laughs> oh dear. I'm sure, I'm sure you did as well, Alan, actually. Because as we're on the subject of pears, Ian mentioned to me the other day about Asian pears. Now, I don't know whether um, anybody's grown Asian pears, and some people might find them a bit strange because they, although they look like a pear, they eat rather more like an apple because the skin of a pear, we tend to think of it as being soft and luscious and yielding. Wait for it. No. No, no. <laughs> and, I was considering uh, making a comment regarding Ian, but I chose not to. Oh, I see. Um, are they They're crisp and they're very juicy. So when you bite into them, be prepared to get a wet chin because they dribble down your chin. <laughs> I know, I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen Ian for a long time. I know he's tried a lot of Norfolk pears, and I think he is trying uh, Asian pears now. But um, aren't they stripy, some of them? Some of them are, yes, but some of them are just, look just like an ordinary English pear or a French mm. pear, but they're not. They're, I mean, they are Japanese and they have a different texture. Very nice. Well, we're going to run out of time again. So if you want to ask a question on the next podcast, please do comment below and whoever our next mystery guest is on the podcast can answer your questions. But for the time being, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And thank you, Ben, for finding a very stylish and well-pictured corner of your home to join us. I did, I'm now thinking I shouldn't have gone with such a fussy wall. <laughs> <laughs> That painting there, where it is, needs to go. I should remove that one. But there we go. I was worried there'd be a cobweb behind it, so I didn't take it off. <laughs> well, there's always next time, Ben.
There is, there is. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, 4Ds here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening. And we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.